Now I'm here. Now I'm here. And now I'm here. Now you're here, dear listener. We can begin. So welcome to episode 28 of the Mainframe Performance Topics podcast, preview that we do anew. We are Marna Wally from ZOS Development in IBM Poughkeepsie. And Martin Packer from somewhere else in the world. And we have for this episode a guest. And he is a friend of ours, Nick Matsarkis from ZOS Development, who does performance. So let's explain the title of the episode, the preview that we do anew. Exactly. This is a, a great episode. I was happy that we could get on right at announcement time. And we're going to cherry pick through the ZOS 2.5 preview announcement and talk about it. And we've got a performance topic that's also about the 2.5 preview announcement. But first, I want to talk about something that's relatively new and that everybody should pay attention to. We've got an IBM software electronic delivery change taking place, but it doesn't have to be a change associated uh, for you. On April 30th, if you are using FTPS to retrieve your software from IBM, you will have to be using FTPS uh, with ATTLS. However, it doesn't need to be a concern for you because we strongly encourage everybody to use HTTPS instead, and therefore this change doesn't matter to you. So take notice, April 30th is the day, but if you're on HTTPS, no effect. And now it's time for our mainframe topic. Indeed it is, Martin. So I'm real excited about this because the mainframe topic that we have for this episode is the 2.5 preview topic. We've been working on this release for such a long time, and I'm so excited that it's nearing GA and we can get to talk a lot about the functions in it now because it's been previewed. So if you look at the preview document itself, it talks a lot about ZOS 2.5 early functions that we've done and that we're ready to integrate. And they were actually integrated via continuous delivery on pre-ZOS 2.5 releases. So the APAR numbers in the preview are very handy because that will enable you to go and look up the uh, details on those APARs that are integrated into 2.5. Exactly, exactly. So these 2.5 functions were available early. We put them out. It's all great. You get early stuff from 2.5 actually on prior releases. But what I do want to do in this podcast episode is I want to look at two parts uh, for this mainframe section. I clumped them together. One of them is the installation changes and the other one is, you know, well, everything else. (laughs) Well, half the game is getting there. So let's talk about the installation changes. Yeah, love it. Okay, finally, finally, IBM will have ZOS installable with ZOSMF as a portable software instance. So we have been working towards this for a very, very long time. However, I do want to start off by saying something that, you know, sometimes scares people as I say 2.5 is going to be available to be installed with COSMF. I'm going to go back and talk about 2.4 now. Now, 2.4 is not changing. So what's out there is not installable with COSMF, and it will not be installable with COSMF. So for ZOS 2.4, the driving system requirements remain absolutely the same. But now let's move to 2.5 because that's where all the action and fun stuff happens. So ZOS 2.5 will be installable with ZOSMF. So that is a driving system change. But there is going to be a small window when 2.4 and 2.5 are concurrently orderable on Shop Z. 
and on which ZOS 2.5 will have the same driving system requirements as ZOS 2.4. But the point to notice here is that after that window, after ZOS 2.4 is no longer uh, marketed or sold, take careful, careful notice because that is when ZOS 2.5 will be only orderable as a ZOSMF server pack and you will have to install it with ZOSMF. And it's not just affecting ZOS SRELs, it's affecting all of the SRELs. So by that, I mean that Kix, DB2, IMS, MQ, and ZOS, at that point in time, everything, if you want it in a server pack, will be installable with ZOSMF. So this seems to me to be quite a big deal, really. And I think everybody needs to be prepared for that and do their planning. So help us out here. Give us some more exact dates. Yeah, so let's just talk specific dates here. So ZOS 2.5 is planned to be orderable starting in September of 2021. ZOS 2.4 is planned to stop being orderable in January of 2022. So the window when 2.5 will be installable not being ZOSMF or optionally available with ZOSMF will only be those four months in between September and January. However, I don't want anyone to fret about this because they uh, may not want to order ZOS 2.5, you know, before January 2022, if that's not what they usually do. Because installing server pack with ZOSMF really isn't that hard, as long as you know about it and you're prepared. Este parens, as the Romans possibly said. So what, to be prepared, you know, what do people have to do today that's going to help? So there's something you can do, and we've been talking about this for literally years. Uh, get ZOSMF up and running on your driving system. Learn about ZOSMF software management, which is actually a very intuitive interface. And try out by installing a portable software instance today from a website that I am going to put in the show notes or from something else, uh, a Kix DB2 or IMS server pack that you can get today. By the way, just as a side note, you know, we've had a newbie that I know in IBM and they're newbie on ZOS, not even familiar with SMP or JCL that much. And this person installed a package of a portable software instance in less than a couple of hours. So this really isn't hard stuff. And ZOSMF nicely guides you along the way to make sure that you're not making any mistakes. So when we look at this, this is a huge step forward to the ZOS installation strategy that IBM and all the leading software vendors have been working for years on. Yeah, I remember John Eels uh, on episode nine of this very podcast came and talked about this new strategy. So did you tell us that Kix, DB2, and IMS are already installable with the ZOSMF server pack? Yeah, it, and it's been that way for a long time now. So if you wanted to try a server pack on some real products, you could go order those today and install those today. And you know, if you, even if you already have it, you could just throw it away and just have an installation test that you did to get familiar with it. So suppose I don't want a server pack. What are my other options? Well, of course, a CBPDO, that remains, okay, and that would be an option. And, you know, but for really larger products, it's not really an option in my mind because a CBPDO is such a more complicated type of install and, and server pack is vastly superior to CBPDO. And in my mind, a ZOSMF server pack is immensely more superior. So I can't really imagine why uh, people wouldn't want a ZOSMF server pack. I'm not sure either. Maybe it's just out of inertia. 
Okay, so en enough of the great stuff about install. That's all great, but let's look at some other stuff that's in the 2.5 preview for, for mainframe types here. First one is notification of availability of TCP IP extended services. I think this is a great little goodie. So for many operational tasks and applications that need ZOS TCP IP communication services, the current messages that are produced when it's initialized just are, are insufficient. So now we'll have a new ENF event that is intended to enable applications and dependencies on TCP IP extended service to initialize faster when they receive that ENF event. So, you know, we're probably going to have to dig in a bit more as to what those actually mean as time goes on with this release. One that caught my eye is a WLM change. Well, really, it's a WLM managed initiator change. So management will now take into account the availability of zip capacity as well as general purpose engine capacity. It's always done general purpose engine capacity is one of the factors determining whether to add initiators or to drain some initiators. Now I'm told that it works most effectively when the customer has separate service classes for mostly zip work and mostly GCP work. I have to say in my early experience of this, I. I don't think there really are many customers who separate zip heavy work in batch from general purpose engine heavy work in batch, but we'll, we'll see again, you know, very early in life, this release. Another thing we have is PFA has more checks. So that's predictive failure analysis. And the more checks are for above the bar private storage exhaustion, JES2 resource exhaustion, and performance degradation of key address spaces. Yeah, we might want to revisit this as we uh, see more people use this and how valuable it becomes. The next one I wanted to look at is catalog and idcams enhancements because there's some really cool things in here that people have wanted for a while coming. So CAS, the catalog address space restart functions are enhanced to allow you to change the master catalog without an IPL. And I know we've been waiting and hearing about this one for a very long time. So this is something that's coming in 2.5, changing the master catalog without an IPL. Wow. The next one is IDCAMS. The delete mask can take a test and exclude option. And this is also something that we've had customer requests to do. So a test option would be if you wanted to see what would be deleted if you were to do the delete. So this is almost like doing something like an apply check, right, in the EdCams delete. So I'm thinking this would reduce the number of slip ups if people actually use it, which I hope they do. Yeah, exactly. And that's why so many people wanted it. Also, you know, we have the test option now, but we also have the exclude option, which is nice because we could do further filtering beyond uh, what you put in the mask. Another option is IDCAM's repro is going to move IO buffers above the line. And this will help avoid 878 insufficient virtual storage app ends. And yes, we did say line. <laughs> We don't often talk about the line, really, do we? We tend to talk about moving stuff above the bar, but above the line would be really quite handy in this case. And just speculating now, I can think of a couple of things. So maybe by moving the buffers above the line, we can have more buffers, which might mean reduced I.O. and you know faster throughput, possibly reduced CPU. Uh, who knows? Equally, it might allow more multitasking in one address space. And I'm thinking here of something like HSM, which might do multiple repros in, in parallel. I, I don't really know, but, but it seems, again, a possibility. Every, every time you create more real estate, 
people start thinking about how to use it. And to me, I think it might be more buffering or more parallelism or maybe both. I don't, I don't know. It's a good fun one, I think. On the RMF side, there's a new RMF's concept for coupling facility data gathering. So the option you would have is to optimize coupling facility hardware data collection so it only runs on one system. I think when you think about this one, you have to remember that the SMF 74 subtype 4 record, which is really what RMF is going to cut here, has two types of data in it. It has stuff that's system specific. So specifically things like request rates, like service times are going to be at the system level. Whereas there's stuff that's common to all systems. So for example, the size of a structure is something that's fixed and you're not going to see a different number if you look at it with RMF from the various systems that connect to it. So we have to be aware, you know, there are things that are common. Why collect them more than once? Exactly. And this had an eye to reduce overhead on those N minus one systems. So note this is going to be an option and you'll have to choose that you want to do this and it's not taken by default. So this is pure exploitation function here. So I would like to see some early life data on this before I make up my mind as to how applicable it generally is. And I'm more concerned, frankly, as a consumer of the SMF data as to whether I'm going to have to change the way I crunch the records because of this when it happens. But again, as this is a preview, this is very early life. Yeah, and who knows, as you look at this more, you'll have recommendations for customers. So I'm looking at you to uh, be a feedback person on this item. If not me, then who? Goodness only knows. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. All right, keeping on the RMF topic, RMF is being restructured. So really, you know, all of the functions are still there and it's still a priced feature. It's still called RMF and everything in ZOS 2.5. The post-processor is going to remain in RMF. And uh, we've done a little bit of restructuring. So now we have something called the basic data gatherer, and that's going to be into the base of ZOS. And that part is entitled. And you can use that whether you've bought RMF or not, and, and that will cut SMF records. But we also have now a new advanced data gatherer priced feature. And if you're an existing RMF customer and you purchase RMF on ZOS 2.5, you will be entitled to use the new advanced data gatherer priced feature as well. So you buy RMF, you can also use the advanced data gatherer feature if you want. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning this, not because, you know, the functions are still there, they're still all the same, um, you know, might see a different base feature or base uh, element that's been added and a new price feature, but if you're an RMF user and you buy it, you still get everything you had before. The reason why I mention this is because it has had with it some restructuring of data sets and those data sets are, some of them are new and you have to put some of those new data sets in your PARM lab. You know, for example, you got to get them APF authorized and in the link list. So there is a little bit of configuration PARM live changes to do because of this restructure, but the function still is all there and acts as you, you would expect it to. And I would say that something like this, which needs some forward planning, is a good reason for doing a preview with an item like this. Yep, sounds good. That's why I wanted to mention it. So the last item I wanted to put in the mainframe topic here for the preview is more quite diverse RACF health checks. So I know when RACF puts out health checks, they're usually pretty, pretty darn important. And so we've got three here. We've got some on pass tickets, the subsystem address spaces active, and also sysplex configuration. So keep a good eye on those if you're a RACF user. 
And now it's time for our performance topic. And today I'm very pleased to have my friend Nick Matsakis with us to talk about ZCX uh, enhancements in 2.5. So Nick, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm Nick Matsakis. I work in ZOS development. I've been in ZOS for about 32 years. I'm a development performance expert, so I have knowledge of both areas, which is really useful. Uh, I've worked on a lot of things from XCF, XES. I used to own GRS. I've worked on ZCX recently, right? RSM, VSM. So I've been around the block in the base control program. So I've known Nick for, I don't know how many years, I'm going to say over 20 years, because I first ran into you when you were on assignment in Hursley, whenever that was. Yeah, that was uh, 1998 to 2001. Oh, wow. I wonder how old our listeners were when you were there. (laughs) Some of them negative, possibly. (laughs) Anyway, right, we're going to talk about ZCX. Let's get on with it, shall we? Mostly note to myself to get on with it. Why don't we start with what ZCX is? What it does is it allows you to run Docker containers on ZOS. So it stands for ZOS Container Extension. So if you keep that in your, in your mind, you'll really know what it does, right? So the idea is to extend functions that, for things that are already running on ZOS. So co-location, right? So if you have something that you have off the ZOS, off platform, that maybe is running on x86 in a container, you can now bring that on to ZOS, co-locate it with maybe a server that it was talking to on ZOS or some other function. That's one case. Kind of look at it like an appliance, right? Where, and we actually call the CCX instances or address spaces appliances. So you can run, again, run containers that are compiled for system Z, right? So you can't run something that's compiled for x86 where, you know, we don't provide that capability. But as, as long as it was compiled for Z instructions, you can run it natively on ZOS. So a lot of people ask, what do I do with it, right? Like I said, you treat it, treat it like an appliance. Maybe you have something already that's running in a container off-platform, like I mentioned before. So what we've done is we've put together some material to talk about various use cases. The first place you can find something is you can go out to the ZCX documentation online, and we've got a tab that has use cases. So that, that's, that's very useful. We've also put together a red book that is actually called ZCX Use Cases. And that has several use cases from MQ to Aspera to some operations type things. And then recently, it just came out a few months ago, uh, actually in February, the IT Economics Consulting and Research Group put out a paper. It's called Ready for the Cloud with IBM ZOS Containers. And that covers two cases where they have uh, some workloads and they've done measurements. And they've also put cost analysis in there. So the two main things that they worked on or you know, that, that the workloads I have is they take their, a microservices approach. So they take something out of or they add to right a workload that they had. They run a microservices uh, container in CCX right on the same ZOS that the workload's running on. And the other is they have this monolithic bank, which you may have actually heard of if you follow these guys, workload where they've extended that to use ccx so that's a really good paper Uh, they've got some good use cases in there a couple of the ones that really stand out at least for me right is you may be using the mq concentrator today and and usually what that's used for is to reduce uh, zos cpu cost okay so when what that is is you run off platform the concentrator probably on linux maybe on another lpar on the same cac and it has a set of connections that connect with MQ, but it acts as a proxy. So you have all these distributed guys and they're talking to the MQ concentrator directly. 
and then it talks through less channels to the MQ chin because the outbound channels that connect to the chin, they're pretty expensive and CPU cost is high. So people use the concentrator for that purpose. Well, now you can bring it in and run it in CCX rather than running it off platform. It's easier to manage, right? You bring up your ZOS, you can bring up the MQ2 with all your automations. The other example uh, that they have is really good is you can run a Spera. So a Spera allows, if can reduce CPU cost and increase network performance, especially for streaming type workloads. I don't want to beat that to death. What I'm going to do is recommend that you take a look at the MQ for ZOS performance report use cases. So that's another document that was put out recently. And that has several use cases for MQ. It's really well written and gives you all kinds of information on performance improvements by being co-located. So remember, it's ZOS container extensions, co-locations where it's at. As long as you can run it in a Docker container and you can go out to GitHub, there's a location that has all the containers that people have put out there to run on CCX, right? You can run it now natively, well, not natively, but in the extension right on the same uh, ZOS with a high-speed link, we provide a high-speed link. You know, it's basically memory to memory almost between other ZOS things running, right? Like maybe DB2 or whatever you're connecting to on the back end and CCX. We'll, we'll talk about more later. And all this was made available in 2.4 as one of the main features of that release. So what we really want to do now is talk about the enhancements in 2.5. So why don't we start talking, Nick, about the ZIP eligibility enhancements? Right. Just one thing I want to say, Martin, you also need a Z14. That's a prerequisite. So since we first GA'd back in 2.4, we've been continuously delivering support. And one of the first things we delivered was a huge reduction, dramatic reduction in uh, GCP usage by a CCX instance. So right now you could expect about 95% or higher zip offload. So it's pretty good, pretty good story. Okay, so let's move on to memory. With regard to memory, CCX is basically a hypervisor, if you will, right? Because we're running Linux, and then Linux is running Docker containers, which actually run bits of Linux within them. We're basically running the kernel. So when you define an instance or an appliance, which is an address space, you specify how much guest memory that Linux can use for the kernel, basically the base Linux. So we've done a few things in the memory area. One, for performance, we've added, originally when we first came out in 2.4, we only supported guest memory backed by 4K pages. And it has to be fixed memory, by the way. Okay, so right now it's all fixed memory. So since then, a couple months ago, we GA'd some support, right, continuous delivery, where we support one meg or two gig pages to back the guest. And with that, you could expect to get better performance, right? For all the reasons why large pages provide better performance, mostly because of TLB uh, misreduction. And it, uh, it can give you a pretty good boost. What we saw in-house was basically from 0.25%, which is pretty small, that was a workload that had very small memory footprint, okay? So as a result, it was kind of happy with 4K pages. Two, up to six, I even saw 12%. I mean, we were advertising up to 6%. It really depends on what you're running, but that's pretty good. I think you should expect uh, with two gig pages, you could expect at least a three, four, 5% improvement, depending on what you're doing. And what you're doing generally has to do with are you randomly touching memory? What's the footprint like? And you know, you got to remember too that we're running these in our benchmarks where it's a dedicated workload. And sometimes the impact could actually be more impressive or you're going to get more when you have a mixed workload because we're not dirtying the cash for other people as well. That's about it on memory. Oh yeah, we also increased 
the size of memory. So we went from around 100 gig, which is a lot, you know, a lot of storage for, for one of these instances to up to a terabyte. And uh, so we've been alleviating. I mean, there really haven't been any constraints with any of the use cases that we mentioned before, but we're looking towards the future. This is a place where there's a lot of action. So we've increased the maximum amount of memory. We've increased the amount of disk space that you can have. We've gone to uh, large pages. Uh, we haven't increased the number of CPUs because it's pretty high. 64 is pretty high. Virtual CPUs per instance. So, you know, if you're using 64 CPUs, I want to know. Right, and I think we should briefly discuss large frame area. So if you're going to have one meg or two gig pages, you need to have a non-zero large frame area. In fact, you need it big enough to, to contain all of those, right? Now, actually, we discussed large frame area with Dave Betton in the performance topic of episode 26, but I think it bears repeating here. Yeah, so, so a few things on the large frame area. One thing to keep in mind is in ZOS 2.3, the way the real storage manager manages memory was dramatically changed, okay? It used to be prior to that, you had to say how many two gig frames you want. By the way, you still have to say that. How many one meg fixed frames that, that you want to be pre-allocated at IPL time. One meg pageable frames, what the size of that area should be. In 2.3, the only thing that remains is two gig frames that are allocated at IPL time are two gig frames. One meg frames, whether they're fixed or pageable, they come out of the same pool of memory that 4K pages come out of. However, we have this legacy of the LF area for both two gig and one meg pages. The pageable area is completely gone, so it's no longer in your control. And the LF area for one meg pages, as of COS 2.3, is really a maximum of how many fixed one meg pages are allowed on the system when they're initially allocated via IARV64. So when you're thinking of ZCX, we support two gig, one meg, or 4K pages for the guest. And the way, the way we did that, you always get the best performance with two gig pages when you have cases where you're touching lots of memory, right? But they're not that flexible, right? Because you have to define the LF area for uh, two gig pages. One meg pages, again, you gotta define the LF area. They are more flexible because there are, it comes out of the same pool as the 4K pages. So if you're a ZCX instance, for, for instance, if you define it to use one meg pages and that instance isn't up at that time, those one meg pages go back into the pool. So they can be carved out or used by others as 4K pages. Where two gig, once since their IPL time, two gig is always two gig is always two gig unless you re-IPL. Again, the annoying thing is for one meg pages, if you want to increase the maximum because now you have this you know, lovely ZCX instance, you have to re-IPL. We provided the ability for you when you configure the guest to say what page sizes you want us to try. So you could say, uh, what I actually recommend is, you know, two gig all the time for performance if it's a production ZCX. So you could specify, give me two gig. And if you can't get two gig, give me 4K. All right. So the 4K would be a, a RAS or availability type of thing where when ZCX comes up, if it couldn't get the two gig, it could always fall back to 4K but you should really plan for using two gig. If you're gonna use one meg, you plan for that. One meg again would be really good. Let's say if you're running, you run something during the day, you don't run it at night, so you wanna give that memory back for a batch that can't exploit two gig. I think one of the things to pick up on also is on the one terabyte guest memory configurable limit. In reality, you have to be aware that CCX uses fixed storage. So, and obviously that's a subset of all real storage so your practical limit is probably going to be much lower i mean i don't typically see lpars 
with one terabyte or anything like on them. Um, so, so this is a limit that you're not really expected to come close to anytime soon. But the point here, I think, is the limit used to be an awful lot lower. I always think when you talk about new limits, it's good to compare them to the old limits and, and understand really what we're doing is trying to get away from the old limit more than necessarily expect people to go straight to the new limit. Right. I mean, um, we were around 100 gig before and, you know, we're in, in a lot of areas on the system, we're increasing capacity. OK, so one terabyte's pretty high. You know, right now, ZOS only supports four terabytes. So if you're going to run, run <laughs> one CCX, you're carving out, you know, a fourth of uh, all the available memory. But, you know, another area is we also increase the number of containers. So we were somewhere around uh, you know, 200 ish like that. But now we support up to a thousand containers. So we're we're increasing the capacity of each CCX instance. And remember, you can have multiple instances. So these limits are per instance. Right, right. That's, that's certainly true. And I think another area we should talk about, at least briefly, is the relief in disk space limits, which you briefly mentioned before. But just say a little bit more about that. Right. So when you configure a CCX, you know, there's guest memory we talked about. And you also need to configure, at least specify uh, how much space you want for data, swap disks and the root disk. So we've provided support via continuous delivery to have up to 245 data sets. So that we've increased that capacity too. So we've done memory, right? We've done disk, we've increased the page sizes. So, yeah. Right, it's all about growth, isn't it? Yeah. So the other thing we should talk about at this point, I think is vaguely in the category of instrumentation. Right. So a couple things. We we provided some support as well where we monitor resources that are being used by the guest. And when they reach certain thresholds, like 50% of disk space, 70%, 85% of memory, you know, there are three different points, 50, 70, 85. We put messages out both to the job log and also to the syslog. And then when, it, when they come back down to around 50%, then we issue another message to say that it's been relieved. Okay? So that's you know an area where sometimes we see people who might be swapping and they don't realize they're swapping. Okay, things like that, and they're saying, "Hey, I'm sucking up a lot of CPU." So this is good because you get a nice message, lets you know what's going on. You know, for for a lot of the people who haven't been running Linux, some of this stuff's like a black box which they've never opened up, right? <laughs> you know, this is one you can open up. There's a lot of monitoring tools for Linux, and they're all, they all apply. You know, if you want to get them. Right, right. And and I suppose that allevi alleviates to some extent the need for SMF to do more in this area because I, I think in 2.5, it's still going to look like a black box in SMF 30 terms, but that's okay if you're using these other ways of doing the instrumentation. Well, you know, when you say it's, it's okay. But... So finally, let's talk about SIMD. All right. So first thing is SIMD is the same as vector. Single instruction, multiple data. So whenever you hear about it, you, you think performance in scientific analytic type space. All right, analytics is where is it where it's at, and that's one of our main interests for performance, right? Because we have use cases where people are running things that are using SIMD, either whether it's analytic or maybe potentially scientific. But also, we found out that there are some folks who have had containers potentially that. Uh, uh, don't check to see if SIMD supported on the host or not. So they actually weren't working. So there's there's two reasons. It's performance and also just uh, you know compatibility, making sure it works for cases where people may not be doing things right. 
So one thing to keep in mind, I've mentioned several times, I think for each of these, pretty much everything you see in the 2.5 announced has been rolled back, you know, the and continuous delivery is where, where it's at. Uh, you know, if you go to 2.5, you pick all that up. Uh, in the future, you'll, you'll see more things coming. So from this item, and the fact there's a lot of it in the 2.5 preview, you can firmly conclude that ZCX isn't a case of one and done which I personally find reassuring. I like to see a piece of technology that we introduce on the mainframe evolve. I would think 2.5 is probably quite a good time to try it because it obviously rolls up all of the continuous delivery um, APARs since 2.4. But, you know, realistically, if you want to try it, 2.5 is going to be quite a few months away in most shops. So, so why wait for 2.5? particularly if you can apply a lot of this um, maintenance already. Yeah, just one thing I wanted to add to that, you know, it is a, a price feature, but we do also have a trial capability. So you can try CCX for, I think it's 30 days for free, you know, on 2.4. That's pretty good. So if you want to know more about the whole performance area for CCX, Nick, you've got a presentation, haven't you? It's probably a good parting shot to tell them a little bit about it. Uh, so Mike Fitzpatrick and I, Mike is a comp server architect, uh, performance specialist. We've done two presentations, one at SHARE, it's called ZCX Performance Considerations. And then we did a subsequent one, which was actually updated a little bit at uh, the UK uh, GCE not too long ago. So it's a, you know, it's a good idea to, to review that. There's also a section on monitoring the Linux guest itself. And we provided some examples with ZCX. Now let's talk about our topic for this episode. So I've titled this Filter CSV and Tree Manipulation. Okay, so let's start at the top. What do you mean by trees, Martin? Give me some examples. So the most obvious example to me is that if you create a mind map, it leads to a tree-like structure. For example, you know, a sysplex consists of systems. So there's a branching right there. And a system consists of one or more DB2 subsystems. and the Kix regions that might be connected to that DB2 subsystem, there could be many of those, and typically there are. So you have a tree-like structure in, in that case. In fact, in one of my open source projects, DB2 DDF analysis tool can depict DDF connections, that is remote connections into DB2 in a tree-like structure. So that's another example. Okay, so let's get back to the basics here. What is a tree? Right. So let's talk about it from the point of view of a computer science definition. So the definition would go something like this. A tree is a node with zero to many children. And there are leaf nodes and non-leaf nodes. And a leaf node has zero children. And a non-leaf node has one or more children. But the children are also trees. So we have a recursive definition right there, if that doesn't make you go cross-eyed. But that's rather nice because it means you can rather efficiently navigate through a tree structure in a recursive fashion or, if you prefer, in an iterative fashion. Yeah, sounds good then. And that fits well with computer science. So multiple trees make a forest. Who said computer scientists have no sense of humor? They do. They do. The, the idea is you could have basically multiple root nodes, that is nodes with no parent. So therefore, multiple trees in a, guess what, a forest or a wood. There are plenty of other old English terms for this sort of thing. But yeah, so there's a notion of a forest, which is multiple trees. 
So if you look at it structurally, each node is going to be a data structure. And as such, it's going to have fields in it. You know, maybe readable names would be a field. So in one examples I gave just now, maybe the DB2 subsystem name would be a visually represented character string that would be in a field. But there might be other metadata to go with it. So each node is typically a data structure and that data structure will also contain pointers to its children. And maybe there's pointers back up the chain to its parent as well. So that's what I would tend to call something like a, like a topology. Right. And these trees would have levels associated with them too. Yes. So I've mentioned a root node just now, which has no parents. That would be at level zero and its children would be at level one and their children, if they had any, would be at level two and so on. And the concept of levels is actually kind of important in discussing how to use this tool called filter CSV. Okay, so let's move to a, a, another part of this whole idea here is that iThoughts as a mind mapping tool. Yes, it is. And it's actually the one that we use to do our podcast planning and I use in lots of other contexts as well. So it displays a mind map which is a structured collection of thoughts in its purest form as a tree. So we have I thoughts manipulating trees and the nodes or the blobs in the mind map, they can have attributes like colors and shapes, which will actually be important a bit later on. And I thoughts, in case you're not a Mac user, it also runs under Windows and it runs on iOS and iPad OS. I don't believe it runs on Android, unfortunately. But then I don't have Android, so I'm not that sorry. And one of the key features of iThoughts as a mind mapping piece of software is it actually can import and export comma separated value files, CSV files, in a specific format that is actually quite well defined in the documentation on the web for iThoughts. So you can actually round trip a mind map through a CSV file. And the CSV file doesn't just contain you know, strings and colors, it actually contains the whole topology. So you can import and export in a number of formats as well. But in particular, I wanna talk about the CSV aspect of this and hence the name Filter CSV. So your tool, this Filter CSV tool, what, what is it exactly? One of the problems with iThoughts, and it's not a major problem for most people, but it is for me when I'm trying to do things at scale, because I might have hundreds of nodes in a mind map if they're machine generated to give, let's say, KixDB2 topology, is iThoughts has very little automation of its own. But crucially, if you can export a CSV file from iThoughts and you can import it, who's to say what you did with it in the meantime? Indeed, and this is actually my use case, I generate these CSV files in my uh, mainframe SMF analysis code. But the point here is it's just a CSV file. You can do whatever you like with it. And in particular, you can mangle it or transform it, either having exported it from iThoughts or otherwise, before you re-import it into iThought. So it's an open source program that's available on GitHub through the MIT license. And what it does is, guess what? It manipulates iThoughts format CSV file. So it sounds like filter CSV could address the automation problem. Yes, because it enables you to automatically mangle the CSV or process it. And you do it based on simple commands you give to filter CSV. So give me an example of those commands. Right, so the first one I ever worked on was to automatically color the nodes or blobs, if you prefer, 
based on patterns. So what do you mean by pattern here? Patterns for filter CSV are regular expressions because that's the most flexible way of matching things that, that I think people can cope with. And to be quite honest, cope with is probably the right tone to adopt here. Regular expressions are very powerful. They're rather terse. It takes a lot of practice to work with them. I would almost say I'm getting good at them now, almost. <laughs> so if this, then what? So suppose a pattern matches for a particular node. What you could do is set the color value of the node. So the red, green, blue RGB value for the node. So a good day job example for me is coloring a Kix region. So if a Kix region matches through a regular expression, a naming convention, then let's say we want to color it blue. And if another kicks region matches a different regular expression, maybe we color it green. So I started this to be able to automatically find patterns in kicks region names so I could look at naming conventions. And to be quite honest, customers have lots of them. I've got to the point now where I sometimes worry about running out of colors to color the blobs because there are so many naming conventions in play. Not quite, but, but somewhat close to that now. So I'm always on the lookout for a good swatch of colors in RGB value terms to color things with. So filter CSV actually started out as a pretty simple thing, just coloring blob. So it was simple once. But, you know, as these things happen, I, I can tell you've got a little bit of a more story here. <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. I, I, as I started using the tool, and, and generally when I write a piece of code, it, it's actually to use it. I kept thinking of things I needed or stroke wanted, you know, who, who knows need versus want. So I kept adding function. Uh, most recently, find and replace was quite a good thing to do. And that's particularly useful if you're trying to anonymize. So if I write a blog post with some kicks regions on it, I probably want to change their names and I probably want to do it by a find and replace pattern. So that's an example of how I kept adding function. And to be honest, filter CSV got just a little bit out of control. Yeah, as these things do. They do indeed. Now it's time to talk about the blogs. Martin, what do you have? Well, I'm gonna do a batch of these. I've actually written more than just the ones I'm going to talk about today, but for the next episode, hopefully real soon now, I'll talk about a whole bunch more of them. So let's just talk about four of them. So two of them are about open source projects of mine, MDPRE and MD2PPTX, which is a pair of projects that are a tool chain for turning Markdown into PowerPoint uh, slide decks. The third one is also really in the topics category because it's documenting some experiences with automating Microsoft Excel on the Mac with Apple Script. Then we get back to the day job a little bit because I have a blog post about SAP and DB2 correlation IDs. So that's the four I want to talk about today. I just had two. So I have one that's called The Gift That Keeps Giving, and this is about pre-acquiring PTFs so that you can use the lovely ZOSMF software update function, which was relatively new, but needs you to pre-acquire the PTFs right now. And the second one we already mentioned in the intro was that software electronic delivery change for FTPS, and that's coming on April 30th, 2021, as a reminder. We do welcome your feedback. So you can get hold of me as Martin Packer on Twitter or Martin underscore Packer at uk.ibm.com for email. 
And I'm M. Wally on Twitter and mwally at us.ibm.com for email. So it goes. While I'm here. And while I'm still here. And while you're still here, dear listener, let's keep going. Yeah, so let's go into an after show discussion here, Martin. I noticed that you've been doing a lot of stuff with open source lately. I mean, you've like become Mr. Open Source. Oh, gosh. Yeah, six projects I have to admit to, one of which I haven't even talked to you all about yet. But you have seen in this episode me talk about filter CSV, MD pre, MD to PPTX at various points in the episode. So yeah, my, my hand is revealed. So let's talk a little bit about my experience in doing open sourcing. So the first thing is, and this is probably a note more for the IBMers in the audience than anybody else, the IBM process is actually pretty simple and pretty quick. Yeah, and I would suspect that other software vendors have somewhat of a process as well, just like IBM does. I would jolly well hope so on the grounds that you wouldn't want people leaking intellectual capital without it going through some kind of process. So the actual process for me was basically fill in a form, including talking about what kind of license I wanted. And in my case, I went with MIT because it enables me to do all the things I want to have happen, like begin to build a community and encourage involvement, involve involving people in using it, in writing documentation, perhaps doing some development, that sort of thing. So, so the MIT license for me was a, a very good license to be working with. So I had to choose one. And on top of that, I had to assert that this didn't actually clash with anything IBM foreseeably wants to do. So there really wasn't very much on it. And I passed it by my manager, which is part of the process. Um, and once I'd explained to him what these pieces of code were, and we have a coordinator, and that was about it. So actually not really hard. And I would say from submitting the form to actually having permission was under a week in, in all the cases I've dealt with, and not many quibbles. Now, this might be the simple end of the scale, but I would say it's probably not too bad. So I would encourage people who've got pieces of code hanging around that they think other people might like to, to just get on with it. Yeah. So having got permission, um, I stuck it on GitHub because I find Git very easy to use. So, so the mechanics were easy. Now, you might ask how many people are actually using the code? Well. It's early days, so not that many collaborators so far. But never mind, I think the community will grow slowly but surely. Yeah, I, I think it might. And hopefully, as people go and find more things, they'll want to, I don't know, report issues to you maybe and, and then contribute a solution. That would be great. Oh, no, please don't do that. Please don't submit issues. I'll have to write code that I hadn't dreamt up of wanting to write. But seriously, Oh, I that... was just joking. <laughs> yeah, I was just joking about that. I'm sure the code is good. Uh, well, I'm not sure it's good. You haven't seen the code. Uh, <laughs> so actually, seriously, I am using GitHub issues because that's an easy way to keep track of what I should work on. I will say the frustration is how do you get a GitHub issue into something like Trello or into something like OmniFocus, which is my task manager? But that's probably a story for another day and a slightly sorry story at that. I think there's a connection between Trello and GitHub, though. I haven't necessarily used it, but I think I think it's there. 
So well, as always, when we've got bits of wet string between the blobs of chewing gum, they're never quite the right colour of string or quite the right amount of wetness for my liking. Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm I'm playing with stuff. Yeah, but because that's why you insist on using those Apple tools. That's why that's why they are not to your liking. I think. At least they exist. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other thing maybe we could chat about is, my gosh, how long this episode got. I mean, we thought it was going to be a little bit of a longer episode because just 2.5 preview was going to take up a lot of time. But it ended up turning out a whole lot longer than at least I had hoped. You see, I don't have any such inhibition. I think we could talk forever and, and usefully so. I don't know. I don't think people want such a long episode. I really don't. I try to keep. I try to keep it short dear listeners um and martin is always the one that is okay with going much longer so i don't know it just it seems really long this episode was really long and i'm hoping you know people will get through all the way to the end of it yeah and you tried the trick on me didn't you you tried setting a time budget i did i i learned that it doesn't work and no matter what i tell you on time budget you just seem to do whatever you need to do which i have already learned that by now but I don't know what I'm going to do, Martin. I've got to learn a new trick with you, how to keep it a little bit shorter. <laughs> there, there are people around who say I'm not bright enough to be manipulated. <laughs> well, oh, there's boy. a cat who certainly thinks that. So, um, you know, but what do we conclude from that? Keep trying, I think. Yeah, that, that's that's true. I, I also tried to get Nick to be a little bit uh, short in time, too. I tried it even to... Uh, do it to the guests, but still, my plan did not work. So I have to find something else to do. Mm. So uh, anyway, this is a nice long episode. I, I, I think people will, will enjoy lo large amounts of it. And the old stricture about keep it within a commute. Well, this is the case with reference to coronavirus, I'm afraid. What is a commute these days? It's probably mowing the lawn time or going for a run time. Well, we're for most people, we've exceeded both of those. So anyway, never mind. It's a, it's a it yeah. Well, we'll have is. to break it up into yeah. They'll have to break it up into the I don't know three lawn mowings when we actually have spring again. So so if you stuck with us so far, dear listener, thank you very much. And now I'm not here. And now I'm not here. And probably you shouldn't be either, dear listener. <laughs>